please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Just one moment, Josh is going to be preaching these words to us, but let's now hear uh, the words that the Holy Spirit has entrusted to us in the Bible. This is from Romans 12, 9 through 12. It's in your worship folder. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in prayer, serving the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Keep uh, that passage open in your Bibles, Romans chapter 12, and we're looking this morning at uh, that passage we just had read out. For us, Romans 12 and uh, verses 9 through to 21. Romans 12, 9 to 21. Now, the uh, title I've given for the sermon this morning is The Overcoming Love of a Harmonious Community, which sounds great, but uh, unfortunately, Christian communities are not always perfect, uh, though um, I'm sure you've never found that to be the case. The reality of church is that uh, we are a group of sinners saved by grace, but we are not yet in heaven. Well, yes, indeed. Perhaps you know the phrase, to dwell above with uh, the saints we love, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints that we know, well, that is a different story. So how do we address this matter? And that is uh, the question that Paul is now tackling head-on from Romans chapter 12 uh, to the end of the book. Uh, You will realize, I suspect, it's not very hard to understand that the first section of Romans, Romans 1 to 11, focuses on the doctrinal. Of course, there are practical elements in those chapters, but it is primarily doctrinal. It is about the gospel of God going to all nations, this one gospel through faith in Jesus Christ becomes a great missionary challenge to the great church there at Rome from the Apostle Paul to that church. And so he teaches that doctrine from uh, chapter 1 through to chapter 11. We read out his great summary statement uh, earlier in the service, Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, which is, of course, a very Reformation kind of uh, statement. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, 
First for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as is written, the righteous will live by faith. And that is the biblical gospel that on this Sunday, Reformation Sunday, Christians throughout the world are remembering and recalling, not for the sake of history, but for the sake of the biblical gospel. And this is The message that Paul's been explaining over and over again and applying, it's not all doctrine, he's been applying it, but primarily the first 11 chapters of Romans are doctrine. And when you understand the gospel, when you understand that it is all by grace through faith, the inevitable response of that is worship. So a church that has the gospel becomes a worshiping church, and we see that at the end of chapter 11 where Paul proclaims, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? This, this sovereign God, sovereign over everything in the whole universe, sovereign even over salvation with all the mysteries and uh, complexities that introduces that Paul then explains in chapters 9 to 11, leads inevitably to praise. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. If it's all about God and it's all from God, the only possible response is glory to God. And that's where Paul ends, to him be the glory forever, amen. So doctrine, doctrine, the gospel of God. But now we live in practical reality as a Christian community and what is that like and how do we live that way and so from chapter 12 to the end of the letter Paul is explaining that you may know when he gets to chapter 16 he becomes so practical and so personal that he greets a number of different people Uh, greet Priscilla and Aquila Greet my dear friend Epinetus, greet Mary, he worked very hard for you, greet Andronicus and Junius, greet Ampliatus, greet Urbanus, etc., etc. So always in Paul's mind are real people. And it has often been said that the greatest enemy of practical Christianity is the one who is the enemy of doctrinal Christianity. The reason why Paul preaches doctrine is he cares for Mary Andronicus and Junius, Ampliatus, Urbanus, Apelles, Herodian, my relative, Tryphenia and Tryphosa, these are always in his heart and his mind, and there are many others, of course, in Rome that he didn't know personally, that he was longing to visit. So out of the overflow of the apostolic heart comes the doctrine, but he then has to make it practical, and so he does at the beginning of chapter 12. We looked at this last week. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, that is, this gospel of God I've been teaching to you, there is a response, and the response is to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, and this is your spiritual worship. So in other words, real worship isn't just singing songs, though we've sung some beautiful songs already this morning, and that is a part of worship. Real worship is not just doctrine, though there'll be some doctrine that I'm going to be preaching this morning. Real worship must have legs and feet and hands, action. And so it is a bodily response, all ourselves, that becomes spiritual worship, Monday to Saturday as well as Sunday. It affects our minds. It's the academy. 
Don't conform anymore to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so we are students, and not just at the academy, in church. We are students of the Word. We must understand God's Word and be transformed by God's Word in order to be able to engage creatively and dynamically with this ever-changing culture in which we're placed. Otherwise, we get stuck. We cannot think new thoughts. We cannot be inspired by God's Word to interact with those around us in creative and dynamic ways. Our, our minds must be transformed and so that we are more and more in line with God's will. We don't compromise with the culture around us. We engage it with the unchanging gospel of God and with holiness of lifestyle. And so we know and contest and improve more and more what God's will is. And that's the response to all this doctrine. It becomes very practical. And then there's the community around. And so what does that mean? Well, it becomes an every member ministry. I was just saying that to our class this morning, our new members class. You know, when you become a member of College Church, we're an elder and pastor led. There's a group of elders. There's a group of pastors. But there's a congregation. We're all in this together. This is a congregational church. And that means we're all in it. And we all have a ministry. And part of becoming a member is trying to figure out what your gifts are and how you're going to use them in the church. And so Paul says, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself as sober judgment in accord with the measure of faith God has given you, just as each of us are one body with many members and they don't all have the same function, so there's different ministry going on. So in Christ we are many form one body and each member belongs to all the others and we have different gifts, different grace gifts prophesying. Of course, that's a controversial one in the 20th century, but however you understand that, it's a word ministry. It must be in proportion to faith, so it must be sound, not heterodox, certainly not heretical. And if it's serving, then serve. It's teaching, then teach. Encouraging, then encourage every member ministry. And so there's this dynamic church that's gathered around the proclamation of the gospel, released into service, thinking rightly about God's word, and then comes the community. To dwell above with the saints we love, that's glory. To live below with the saints we know, well, that is a different story sometimes, isn't it? So how do we actually end up with a harmonious community? And Paul now is going to teach us about that. Uh, Perhaps when you had the passage read out just now so well uh, by Pastor Jeremy that uh, it wasn't perhaps obvious to you what the structure of the passage is and you will not be alone in that consideration. Many scholars have struggled to figure out what the structure of verses 9 to 21 might be. And indeed, it is a fairly common opinion that there is no structure whatsoever. I think there is a structure, and I actually think that Paul indicates what that structure is in verse 9. And this goes back to my understanding of Romans. I think what's going on in Romans is Paul, a preacher, preaching in synagogues uh, over and over again, like all preachers do, develop a certain set of sermons, a certain um, gathering of different messages. And when he writes to Romans, you have, as it were, his greatest hits. These are his best sermons put together and orientated towards the church in Rome. And you can discern the different structures and the homiletical background to it. And I think uh, chapter 12, verses 9 to 21 is a sermon. And I think he tells you what his main point is in verse 9. Love must be sincere 
And then two subsidiary points that come out of that, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And he explains that in uh, the following verses. He explains what genuine love is in 10 to 13. Then he explains, I think he flips it, he explains how to hold on to what is good, verses 14 to 16. And then how to abhor or hate what is evil, 17 to 21. That anyway is how I understand the structure. If you don't agree with me, that's fine but that's the way I'm going to preach it because I'm standing behind the pulpit and you're not. So so first, Paul defines genuine love in verses 10 to 13. Genuine love, he says, is to be with brotherly or sisterly affection, verse 10. In other words, and I'm just going to break down each of these statements because they're so rich and they're so practical. In other words, our love for each other, to be genuine is to be modeled after a healthy family love. That's genuine Christian love. So when we say brother to someone or sister to someone, it isn't just lip service. It's a reflection of a real truth that in Christ we are one family. And so he's calling the Roman church to realize that your, your love must be with brotherly affection. That is, this church is the real spiritual brotherhood. It's a, the real spiritual family. And of course, that changes how we treat each other. You know, it's said that you choose your friends, but you don't get to choose your family. Of course, sometimes you probably have some brother that you really get along well with and maybe some sister that you know, used to sit on you because she was older than you or something like that. I don't know. But in church, well, you don't get to choose your brothers and sisters. You're all chosen by God and brought together. But the same token, though perhaps you do not like everyone in church, we are family. We are family. Some people like this, this kind of music. Some people like the other thing. We are family. So we're committed to each other. Affection with brotherly or sisterly affection. And then he says, outdo one another in showing honor. I love how practical Paul is. He, he knows that uh, there'll be people in any congregation who have ambition. They have ambition to be a great preacher, or they have ambition to be a great musician, or they have ambition to be the best Bible study group leader in the church, or they have ambition to set up this mission, or whatever it may be. And and what he says is, your real ambition should be to outdo one another in showing honor to someone else. So we try to be first at showing how other people are more honored than us. Instead of trying to be the one who receives most honor, we try to be the one who gives most honor to other people. Isn't that so practical? It's challenging, isn't it? Our ambition is for each other's ministries to flourish and to be honored. The conversation over coffee should be not, my ministry is so great. It should be, did you see what she did? So you're honoring her. Did you see what he did? So you're honoring him. That's genuine love. Genuine love, uh, Paul says, also has a serving passion. Verse 11, don't be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. So genuine love is not sentimentality. It's not just a feeling. It's a committed, zealous serving. Don't be slothful, don't be lazy, have zeal. It's 
active in ministry. It vigorously serves. Then verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. In other words, genuine love, not only is it not lazy but active, it is also something that does not give up very quickly. Perhaps you're being reminded of Paul's definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13. I don't think it's by happenstance. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. You know, it takes effort to maintain your love, and what you need for that effort uh, to, to maintain your joy, and what you need for that effort is love. It takes patience to keep going through trouble, and what you need for that is love. And prayer, prayer takes hard work. And what you need to keep praying for those around you, the person who annoys you or the person perhaps who's not your best friend, to keep praying for them, what you need is love. Martin Luther here comments about how true prayer is real work and takes commitment and struggle. It's Reformation Sunday, so I have to quote Martin Luther at least once, and there it is. I'll quote Calvin too, so I'm doing very well. Verse 13, then Paul says, this genuine love means we contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So genuine love is being generous to other Christians, that's what he means by the saints, other Christians, and also showing hospitality. Now you have to understand how this is structured. Hospitality literally means loving the stranger. So Paul was coming back with this definition of love to, to love again, and now he's saying loving those outside. So it's contributing to the needs of other Christians, that is the saints, but it's also loving the outsider. So genuine love is not a closed group. It's not a religious little club. It's like Christ's love in that it reach out, reaches out to the outsider. So we may say then in summary that Paul's definition of genuine love is that it is authentic love. It's the love of the author channeled through us, loving others as Christ has loved us. Family love, honoring each other, passionate and committed to serving God, a positive perseverance to rejoice in hope, be patient in trouble, keep on going in prayer, generous generous towards one another, loving towards the outsider. It's loving like Christ loved. You say, well, how do I do that in practice? That's, that's fine as a definition. Well, Paul has two sides of the same coin. You hold on to what is good and you reject what is evil. First, holding on to what is good. This is verses 14 to 16. What does it mean to hold on to what is good? Well, it means to be Christ-like even in your love for enemies. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now, maybe Paul now is thinking about those outside the Christian community and the way the Christian community is to respond to persecution. Or it may be that Paul is thinking about the, uh, the emotive way that sometimes we feel that even a Christian brother or sister can be out to get us and persecute us. Either way, doesn't matter which, the response is the same. Bless and do not curse them. And almost certainly Paul is um, teaching here, and bringing to mind here, reflecting here, Jesus' own teaching to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. So this is genuine love in practice, in the hardest of moments, when persecuted, 
This is when the Christian church shows that it is Christian. I don't know whether you've been following what's going on in Mosul and how the Christians are responding there. It is an astonishing, sweet aroma to the love of Christ. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse them. It is a mark of Christ in us. Christ on the cross who said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus who said, love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. This is a uniquely Christian love that is to reverberate through the Christian community. And it becomes very practical. I love how John Calvin put it. John Calvin, when he was um, actually speaking to uh, some of his fellow ministers, it was the last thing he said to them. He had some very, very practical things to say about the Christian church as he was encouraging them to think about the church. He said this, study too that there be no bickerings or sharp words among you as sometimes biting jibes will be bandied about. This will take place, it is true, in laughing, but there will be bitterness in the heart. All that is good for nothing and is even contrary to a Christian disposition. You should then guard against it and live in good accord and all friendship and sincerity. Calvin, who was a great commentator on Scripture, I think was reflecting on the genuous or sincerity that love is to have. Sincere, authentic, genuine love means loving even those that perhaps are against us. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep, verse 15. Now, this is fascinating. Naturally, we want, you and I, we want to do the very reverse. We want to make the person whose life is going swimmingly well come down off cloud nine and be just a little bit more miserable, right? And we want to make the person who's moping around just to cheer up just a little bit. Paul says we're to do the opposite of our natural tendencies. If someone is a success, you cheer them on. You become their fan club. You say, isn't that amazing? I'm so pleased for you. You're doing so well. I love to see how well you're doing. You're rejoicing with those who rejoice. And then when someone is weeping, you don't come up to them and say, cheer up with you, you're really annoying me with all those tears. You empathize with them. Of course, it's so hard, isn't it, to be happy when someone else succeeds, and it's very easy to be happy when someone else fails. But instead, in the Christian community, we rejoice when others rejoice, we weep when others weep. And so, verse 16, we are able to live in harmony with one another. We're not haughty. We associate with the lowly. We're we're not wise in our own sight. We'll never be wise in your own sight. So, in other words, we don't think of ourselves as haughty or higher. And we don't think of ourselves as clever or wise in our own sight. And so this is uh, genuine love, it's Christ-like love, and in practice that means holding on to the good, which means blessing those who persecute us, seeking their good, not their harm, rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep, living in harmony, which is encouraged by the humility of thinking not too highly of ourselves. This is what it means to hold on to what is good, even in the toughest of times, It's motivated by this love that we are to have, which is genuine and authentic and a reflection of Christ's love for us.
You say, well, that's all very well in good times, but what about in evil times? What about when things don't go well, when things are not clicking along in harmony? What are we to do then? Well, Paul has a word for that too. And what he says is, abhor or hate evil. And I think he's explaining that in verses 17 to 21. Of course, it's a strong thing to say to hate anything, even evil. And so we need to understand what Paul is is meaning by it. And basically, what he's saying here, well, look at verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Again, it's Christ-like in our blessing of those around us, but also Christ-like now in firmly rejecting evil. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. In other words, when we think we have a right to vengeance, repay someone evil for evil, instead, we're to think about and therefore act upon what seems honorable or respectable in view of the whole community. In other words, we take the high moral ground. We don't get into the dirt and the mess and the accusation and counter-accusation. We take the high moral ground and consider what is honorable in the sight of all and that becomes our principle for how to behave when someone treats us evilly. Not responding with evil, but what is honorable in the sight of all, therefore we take the high moral ground and we don't get into the dirt. Now you say, well, what happens if that doesn't work? Well, Paul has a word for that too, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Uh, The reality of human relationships, this side of glory, is that some people just will not, cannot get along with you. If possible so far as it depends on you. In other words, it doesn't always depend on you. But as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And then uh, he has this wonderful way of summarizing it. Uh, Instead of revenge, instead of evil for evil, he um, counsels a kind of exuberant generosity. Look at uh, verses 19 and 20. Beloved, again, this is defining and explaining this love which is to be genuine, hold on to what is good and now reject the evil. Beloved, it's the love idea here again, beloved. Never avenge yourselves, he's thinking about rejecting evil, but leave it to the wrath of God because God is just and he can figure out all these complexities of who's right and who's wrong, that's God's job. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will pay, says the Lord. But instead, verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now that last phrase has troubled many tender Christian consciences. Why on earth should I be trying to heap burning coals on anyone's head? But uh, really, that's a misunderstanding. The burning coals here is almost certainly a metaphor for 
conviction for someone realizing that they're wrong and therefore repenting. Listen to how Augustine put it. If you don't believe me, listen to Augustine. See what he said. We must understand this expression, that is the burning coals on the head, we must understand this expression in the sense that we induce him who has injured us to repent of his action, and thus we benefit him. It it has the picture of a kind of burning, thinking, feeling, a conviction like, oh no, I I really did do what was wrong, the way he's treating me is so kind, I why did I treat him or her like that? And so actually by, by feeding and giving water to and being generous in these practical ways to the one who's against us, we're actually blessing that person by giving them the maximum opportunity to realize that they need to say sorry to God and perhaps to us. So when we're tempted to act in vengeance, we avoid going in that direction. We avoid repaying evil for evil. We reject evil firmly. We abhor or hate evil. We don't go that way by remembering God is the judge. We leave room for His justice. That is, we don't take the law into our own hands. And we remember that by putting generosity in place of vengeance, we're feeding our enemy. We are heaping burning coals on his head. That is, we are making him or her more likely to realize that the way he or she has acted towards us is wrong. So we are blessing those who persecute us. We are feeding those who are hungry. We're giving water to those who are thirsty. And again, this is the one of the distinctive characteristics of the Christian church down through history and still today, that because of Christ's love, the way that he gave himself for his enemies, the way he died for rebels like you and me, that having been won and filled with his spirit, we now, as the church, embody that same love and the way we treat others. And then finally, verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So this is how we resist evil or hate evil, by holding on to what is good. Our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of this dark world. And so we, we don't pick up the sword like Peter and strike off the ear of the soldier, come to rest Jesus. We don't stoop to the lowest common level and get into the dirt and respond with vicious words, with more vicious words. No, when we do that, we've been, we have been overcome by evil. You say, well, then are we just passive and naive and let them dump on us more and more stuff and just become sort of a doormat? No. We overcome evil with good. There is an activist, positive overcoming. But it is the aggression of the blesser, not the cursor, the lover, not the warmonger, the servant, not the master, good, not evil. So here's genuine love, Paul's saying. You, we've got all this doctrine of the gospel of God, and now there's this therefore, of your bodies as living sacrifices, and now we 
in the church are exercising our grace gifts. We've got all this member of ministry going on, all these things going on. But now we've got to keep in harmony. We've got to keep together. How do we do that? It's by love, says Paul. And in particular, by genuine love. That is authentic love. That is the love of the author, Christ, through us and expressed in our own lifestyles as inspired by the Spirit and moved by grace. It is Christ-like love. What does that mean? It means you hold on to the good. You reject the evil. You bless those who are against you. And so you're transformed by love. Now that's the teaching. I've got a couple of well-known hymns here that express that. One from a long time ago, asking that uh, God would uh, give us grace to love Him more. When we hear about Christ's love, when we receive Christ's love, the Christian wants to love him more. And Paul's saying, well, yeah, it is to love him more, but then there are real people around us, and our love for Jesus more and more is to be expressed in genuine love for each other in the family of God. And so there's a more recent uh, hymn that puts it like this. How good it is when the family of God dwells together in spirit, in faith and unity, the bonds of peace, of acceptance and love. Joyce with the happy, weep with those who mourn. For he dwells in the presence of his people. So this is the teaching. Love must be genuine. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. And it is a challenge. So let me leave us with three questions. Here they are. Will we admit or confess, or be real, where we have failed to love? That's the first question, isn't it? Perhaps uh, you can think of someone right now where you have failed to love them. Can you be honest about that? Will you admit that, that your love has not been genuine? Will you admit where we have, will we admit where we have failed to love? Will we then commit to rejecting evil? Perhaps there's someone who is treating you in ways that to you seem to be evil. Will you commit to not responding with evil to evil? But feed your enemy. Bless those who persecute you. It is the way of Christ. Will we commit to rejecting evil? And then the final question is this. Will we believe Christ's love for the power to hold on to love for each other? We need a fresh energy, a fresh experience of Christ's love. 
in order to grow in our love for each other and to hold on to that love? Will we believe Christ's love for the power to hold on to love for each other? Let's pray together. As we pray, let's uh, just remind ourselves of what we've uh, sung this morning. First, um, God is a mighty fortress. Even if the uh, prince of darkness, grim, is attacking us. God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. One little word shall fell Him, the word of the gospel. Our help, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ the solid rock we stand, all other ground is sinking sand. The grace of God has reached for me and pulled me from the raging sea, and I am safe on the solid ground. Now, do you believe those things? Do you believe that uh, God is the righteous judge? And you can leave in His hands uh, your, um, your sense of injustice. And now let's just review our passage. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Would you then in the quiet now ask God for help? to do exactly that. And so loved with everlasting love, led by grace, that love to know, we in some very weak, inadequate way become a reflection of Christ's love in the way we genuinely love each other. Lord, we ask for your help, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.